Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. I am thrilled to have a special triple-time return guest, Ramsey Potts. Ramsey, how are you doing today? Hey, Greg. I'm uh, doing great. Really looking forward to our conversation with uh, you and all your great listeners. Yeah, I appreciate that. And the reason I wanted to have you on again is obviously you're a very fun guy to talk to. You know, you know your stuff. And you were on previously uh, for a couple of different topics, including the launch of our Collector Car Fantasy Football, which we'll have you on again a few times, talking about cars we pick that are trending in the marketplace. And as I look at the RM Sotheby's auction schedule... I, I love the fact that we're now having monthly auctions, typically towards the last week of the month. And I thought, you know what? I just don't want to cover cars that are in the auction. I want to cover cars that are trending in some way, because I think that's fun to find out what's moving and not moving within the marketplace. And I thought, what about a better way to do that this week than having you on and sharing some of your thoughts about these cars? And obviously, I gave you a list of cars I'd kind of like to cover, but I want you to to pipe in there as needed to tell me you know, some other cars that maybe pique your interest that are coming up in this auction. And for our, our listeners, can you just, just give us an overall view of this auction, how it works, and what's going on? Greg, I have to tell you, and I know that you and I talk about it, we're in the industry, but I bet everybody that's listening has the same kind of conversation. Predominantly, when we talk about collector cars today and collector cars at auction, we talk about them online, and it's real. Uh, there's some days when I Wish it wasn't as real as it is, but I'm so proud of RM Sotheby's and how they've made the pivot, the transition. You know all the the buzzwords that people are using. But not only has RM Sotheby's made the transition, Greg, you and I know from a little bit of an insider's perspective, and I want to share that with your listeners, our clients are catching on. The, the sales are filling very quickly. We are moving our consignment deadlines back because people appreciate the unique combination, Greg, of the RM Sotheby's brand. And boy, every day I'm reminded of how powerful and more specifically how broad the reach is. 30 full-time knowledgeable car specialists, uh, eight languages all over the world. And when you combine that with an online opportunity to consign and buy, it's a pretty powerful thing. And I'm just, when we really sort of went at this, Greg, I was curious, as you were, and I think your listeners are, what, what, was, what was it going to look like? What were the consignments going to be? And I think we've absolutely hit it out of the park with this one. We've got an incredible collection of barn fine cars, and we've got world-class European as well as domestic automobiles and some really quite cool automobilia and we're selling it literally in every corner of the world it's amazing it is really amazing i will have to say i did reference a car for sale recently and i was told nope we're full for april so you got to move to may and as to your point is there is an appetite out there a strong appetite for not only selling cars online but also purchasing cars online 
And I love the fact that any of our listeners, any of our clients can call us up directly and say, hey, could you take a look at this car for me? I want to know more about it. It's not a shot in the dark. You know, we have researchers, we have us looking at the cars, doing appraisals, you know, feet on the ground looking at these things versus just kind of, you know, throwing a dart at a dartboard and hoping it's what is that it is as advertised, you know? So I love you know, the Greg, fact. Th thank you for saying that. And I, that's probably the song we need to sing a lot more often within hours of the auction going live. My phone, as I suspect yours did lit up my clients that understand the service that RM Sotheby's provides wanted to know about this car and this car and this car and this car. I'm literally having to time some of my conversations because I'm talking to my colleagues overseas. Tell me about this car. Did you drive it? Yes, this is how it drove. It's a driver. It's not a showroom. This is a Concours winner. This is a, you know, more of just an experiential thing. So it, it you you have to take a little time. You have to do a little homework if you're a registered bidder. But if you do it, the RM Sotheby's specialists are here to dig deep into these cars. It's really cool. Right. Yeah. Now let's talk about this this auction in particular. So this one is live now. When does it end and when do the cars sell and, you know, what's going on as we speak? Yeah, how about it? Bidding is live, Greg. It started on St. Patrick's Day. I hope you had your green on on Wednesday. And they will be closing on a staged period starting on Wednesday uh, of next week, the 24th at 10 a.m. That's going to be our European uh, overseas lots, both automobilia and cars. And then Thursday, March 25th, on a timed period every so many minutes, on Thursday, the 25th, starting at 10 a.m., and those are Eastern times, lots 201 through 271, uh, which are all of the North American pieces of automobilia as well as motor cars, will begin closing. And yes, we do have a, a two-minute feature at the very end, any bids that come in, and boy, it's a little nerve-wracking, but they all seem to come in in those last two minutes, that the bidding will extend for another two minutes. So pay attention, do your homework now, get it done because next Wednesday is going to come quick for all of our European lots, uh, and next Thursday just as quick for everything in North America. Right, right. Awesome. Well, I do want to get to the cars, and I tried to pick a somewhat diverse group of cars, Yeah. but also ones that there's something going on in the marketplace with each one of them, so I do want to call that out. And the first one I'm, I'm picking is actually a personal connection to me. It's a 1974 Alfa Romeo 2000 GTV. Now, I, I picked this car for a lot of different reasons. First, it's trending pretty hot. Uh, the estimate is very, very low, I think. It's 35 to 45 grand on this car. And when you see the stack of documentation and receipts on this car, it is such a fresh quality build. There's pictures online looking underneath it. It is immaculate. I couldn't find a spot of dust on it. It's not a Concorde car, but it's really, really close. Just a great little driver. And I would call this car silver, but I know that's not correct, Ramsey. What would you call this car? Well, now, Greg, I think it's pronounced Grigio Metalazzato over a black leather red. For all you Italian-speaking Alfa Romeo nuts, go ahead, send the cards and letters. But I'm pretty sure that's how we say it. It is really, Greg, a special car. You and I talked about this. You know, I have five rules of car collecting. And rule number five, and this car just defines it. If you want one of these, if, by that I mean uh, one of these 2000 GTVs, which they are so cool. They're coupes. They're fantastic cars to drive. I've been on rallies where there's little squadrons of these, and they just roll down the highway. If you, The best kind of car to buy is the best 
possible example you can afford of the one you always want. And this is one of those cars where somebody else, uh, I feel, you know, it's, it's a little harsh to say it, but somebody else did all the work, Greg. They spent all of the money getting this car to near incredible quality. And now there's someone that will be able to own the vehicle. And this is one of those cases where, you know, you, you what they had spent on the vehicle is more than the car is ever really worth in the open market today. Right. And I do want to give a couple little facts because I don't know Alphas that well, but I did learn a couple cool things about them as I researched this car and talked to my Alpha buddies. Uh, one of them is if you look in the back seat up on the roof, it looks like there's a sunroof, but there's not actually a sunroof. <laughs> there's a, it's inlaid a little bit, and I was told that's for rear seat headroom, which I thought was pretty interesting and cool. So look at the pictures for that. And the other one is typically this particular model with the fuel injection can be a little bit difficult. Uh, not, not necessarily difficult, but you have to know how to reset it. And so I was told you have to you know, put the gas, all, gas pedal all the way to the floor, and it will reset it, and it will start right up. And one interesting thing that happened over the years is some of the aftermarket floor mats would be a little bit too thick. And so people couldn't reset these alphas because of the thickness of the floor mat. So that's just a fun little factoid I heard while I was researching this alpha. Do you know anything about issues with alphas that we should uh, alert our listeners to? You know, as a matter of fact, I, I'm going to second what you said. The shop where I get all of my work done and frankly where I hang out with every spare moment I have, they have one there right now. And the gentleman that bought it, he bought it after it had been converted from fuel injection to carburetors. And they're talking with the shop owner about taking it back because, as you say, once you understand this injection system and you have someone who's capable and competent to manage it and work on it, they really are actually pretty good systems. Yes, carburetors are straightforward and, you know, any good shop can tune them, but there is... If you have the right talent in your shop, some advantage to these injection systems. Right. And I will say when I was there taking the photographs for this, it started right up, no issues, and went right back into the warehouse. So the three-year Haggerty trend on this is insane, up 42.5%. And I know I've seen some online sales of cars not nearly as nice as this, hitting $70,000, $72,000. Actually, I think you just texted me one last week. So uh, definitely a car to watch out for. Now, the next one's a little bit more in my wheelhouse than in Ramsey's wheelhouse, and that's the 2013 uh, Mustang Boss 302. I will have to say that I love these cars. Originally, I wasn't crazy about the styling when they came out. They tried to harken back to the original 69 and 70 Boss 302s. But as time has gone on, I truly love these cars. They're monsters. They're the handling beast. I mean, if you look at historically with, you know, looking back on, uh, on Mustangs and which ones are the ones to have and which ones perform the best. By far, for this generation, it was the Mustang Boss 302. Now, I know folks will say, well, what about the GT500? That was a monster as well. That was much more of a straight-line performer. This one's really meant to carve the canyon roads up. They had a special Laguna Seca one. This one is not that, but it is one of 856 finished in school bus yellow, which I absolutely love. And again, front-engine V8 302 cubic inch engine to harken back to the 6970 Trans Am Boss 302. So anything you'd like to add to this particular car, Ramsey? You know, Greg, since I've started <laughs> since I've started my career with RM Softbees, I know stuff about Mustangs I never thought I would know because I just wasn't 
uh, a groupie. And I have learned so much about these cars. I love this car in yellow. I'm normally not a big fan of black rims, but look at that thing, Greg, with the the, the bright uh, work around the rim itself, the Boss 302 graphics. These are, without question, a lot of car for the money. 444 horsepower in a proper coupe that you could, in fact, drive every day. Don't know that you'd want to. But these things really are. I have. I'm smitten with Mustangs. I'm smitten with the the modern GT350s. I'm smitten with the modern Bullets. Uh, it there. There's a lot of car for the money there. Right. Right. Yeah. And I will have to say this is a low mileage example. Only 888 miles on it. And the other reason I picked this for this episode was because I talk about cars that are trending. And so the three-year Haggerty trend rate is actually down 9.5%, which seems like, well, that's trending in the wrong direction. But when you look at almost the last 24 months, it's been flat. So you've got a car that has fully depreciated. It's on everybody's list as the Mustang to have for the error. It's bottom, you know, it's flatlining right now. So where is that car going to go? It's only going to go up from now. So if you've ever wanted one of these and you wanted to get it while you can afford it, it is the time right now to get it. Would you agree with that? I certainly think this one should be. I happen to be a fan of yellow in the right cars, Greg. Not every <laughs> motor car wears yellow as well as others. I think cars like Lotus Esprit, I always thought the 911 actually wears yellow pretty well. I think this car wears yellow quite good, actually. Yeah, I've been a fan of the springtime yellow in the 60s Mustangs, a little lighter yellow. So I hate to take you down a path that you're not used to, but I'm going to another performance Mustang next. It's the 1968 Shelby GT500 King of the Road Fastback. Now, this one I picked out for a couple of different reasons. One is it would initially seem like a fairly strong estimate, $200,000 to $240,000. Typically, these trade a little bit below that. But when you read about this particular version, it is definitely worth that. It's Acapulco Blue, one of my favorite colors for 1968. As I said before, it's a king of the road. It's a 428 Cobra Jet version. On top of that, it's the four-speed manual from the factory. So that is a big win for any big block Mustang. And the big winner on this is just one of 125 that were built with a factory AC. And that might not seem like a big deal, but in classic muscle cars, not only is that a big deal, in high-performance classic muscle cars, that is a very big deal. So this is highly documented. The three-year Haggerty rent trend is up 4.6%. Uh, which is right along with what, with what I have been saying in the past, is I think muscle cars are always going to be desirable, and this one does show that. So what kind of comments do you have about this Shelby, Ramsey? All right, I actually have some experience with this car, Greg, or excuse me, one of these cars. I had a client many years ago, a dear friend of mine, he no longer has the car, but he purchased a GT500 King of the Road, a KR, at an auction, and I had the good fortune of having to drive it about 50, 60 miles afterwards <laughs> nice. to get it from one place to the other. And I basically have one word to describe these things from my perspective, Greg, and that is scary. These things, <laughs> I, Greg, they are like cruise missiles with brakes for, a, 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 I don't even know, a big wheel. I mean, it is so much car. It is absolutely it's it's shocking and uplifting all at the same time to be behind the wheel. <laughs> That's all. You've had more experience than I have, so I'm jealous. That's awesome. <laughs> well, our next one, I'm going to let you take this because I am not familiar with this car that well. And I put it on the list because uh, 
I've been hearing a lot about it recently. I actually had someone come up at our Scottsdale auction and ask me about it, said, hey, if you see one of these, put it on my radar screen. And then all of a sudden, right after that, Haggerty had an article about this car. And I just started to see it kind of percolating around in my peripheral vision. And so I thought, you know what? I want to see what this one is all about. So it's the 1998 Bentley Continental T RSE, estimates eighty-five dollars to $100,000. One of only 14 North America Regional Special Editions. Don't know what that means, but that's what it says. So what can you tell us about this car? Yeah, Greg, these were limited production extremely limited production the rse regional special edition i mean look at the colors blue this is a mouthful blue sequin mica over sandstone (laughs) the the fact that what you have is a big big comfortable bentley and now you have it in a coupe a true coupe you have incredible performance that's the thing about these things greg people look at these cars and I guess you could use the term sleeper. I don't know that that's really appropriate because everybody knows they're fast. But I think it's fair to say that when you look at them, you don't think, oh, what a speed demon. But they're zero to 60s in sub six seconds. Now, bear in mind, Greg, we're talking about a vehicle that weighs nearly two tons. And <laughs> we don't ask about the gas mileage, but you have a big V8 in there. They're just beautiful cars. And I'm a big fan of Grand Touring Automobiles. You and I have had this conversation, the Porsche 928, the Aston Martin, uh, DB9s and Vanquishes, but you talk about a touring car. Holy Moses, this thing is just, it's incredible. I have had a chance to drive one of these at length as well. I have a client in South Florida that has two of them, actually, and they are incredible cars to drive down the road. They're just, they're stately and yet somewhat understated with regard to their performance, not necessarily their looks. You're going to see this one coming, especially in that color. But they really are very well sought after. Within probably the first 30 minutes of the auction going live, I had no fewer than three clients make inquiries on the vehicle. Right, and this one is currently not in Haggerty's valuation database, but I have a feeling it will be shortly. So let's keep an eye on that one. Under 30,000 miles from new is what it's showing. So we will have to see what that one does. All right. So the next one is back to muscle. I didn't mean to pick a lot of muscle cars. I'm picking more on trends than actual muscle cars. So I know some folks think this is a Porsche podcast, and I will like to point out there hasn't been one Porsche yet, but I won't say that forever. (laughs) Uh, So the next one is a 2005 Dodge Viper SRT10. Now, again, I picked this one because, again, this is another one that's popping up in article after article specifically around the first generation Vipers finally getting their due. I mean, it was the first application of a V10 in a production car. It gets a little bit of a knock for that because it doesn't necessarily have that awesome rumble that you might hear in a V8 or a V12. Uh, But I've always loved the cars. I especially like the second gen, the GTS models. And this one we have is a 2005, like I said before, Dodge Viper SRT10 estimate 65 to 70. Now think about that for a second. This is a car that is... Let's do some quick math here. 16 years old, and it's trading not at sticker, but it's definitely has it is definitely on the upswing. And the Haggerty value trend on this for the last three years is up 19.1 percent. So, what are your thoughts on Vipers in general, Greg? Because of just who I am, I'm not one of those kind of guys that gets to say on a regular basis, "I told you so." But when it comes to Vipers, I told you so. We don't have a crystal ball at RM Sotheby's. You and I both make a big point about that. However, 
this is one of those vehicles where, I mean, they could only be inexpensive for so long. Inevitable. That is the word I use when you talk about the current uptrend of Viper values. And you go back to these very first ones, the very first few years, every generation, they were so unbelievably affordable in a dollar per horsepower or dollar performance value. And yeah, I know there's a lot of detractors that say, well, the cars are, you know, they're going to kill you because there's just so much power with so few nannies that have that fail safe for you when you're driving. But that's sort of the magical and charming appeal to the car. And I truly believe that even though I don't have a crystal ball, we do not, we never will, I truly believe that we are just beginning to see the leading edge of value increases in these cars. They're bloody V10s, Greg. They are monsters on the road. And the fact that this thing is even estimated at sixty-five dollars to $70,000, I think this is one of those situations where get them while you can because it's going to speak to that next generation of car collectors as they come into their, their own and in, in purchasing. Right. I totally agree with you. And if any of you follow me on my Instagram at the Collector Car Podcast, subtle plug right there, you will notice that I've stalking, I'm currently stalking a first-gen uh, model down in South Florida whenever I'm in the area. So I'm trying to figure out who owns this car because it is immaculate. It looks like it has about five miles on it. Love to know more about it because you just don't see them in that type of condition much anymore. And for this second-gen uh, let's see. The second gen has under eight thousand miles on it. It, it. it looks to be in immaculate condition. So, have you driven really... one of these, Greg? I have never had the good fortune and terror of being behind the wheel of any generation Viper yet. I have not. I've sat in them, so I've I've experienced the awkward, somewhat seating position because this is, you know, it's got such a, a large transmission tunnel. But uh, I just always have loved these cars, so I'd love to drive one one day. I, I would like to be scared the way I'm told you can be behind the wheel of one of these. I look forward to that. Right, right. And and just to show our listeners, this is not all about Porsches and muscle cars and exotic cars. Our next car is a 1956 Mercury Montclair hardtop. So when you saw this on the list, Ramsey, what were your first thoughts? A what? That's what I thought, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Greg. I should be a little well more versed in some of these 50s, 60s domestic automobiles. It's not my wheelhouse. I do think uh, as I learn more about them, I've come to appreciate, maybe it's because I'm getting older, the style and the the beauty in their simple sort of square looks. I've come to learn more and, and love them more. I love 1950s cars. I don't have a lot of experience with them. I just love the fins. I love the color palette of that era. And I think it's important. I really want to keep a a pulse on, a finger on the pulse of what is happening in the market trends of all generations. So I want to be sure to include 1940s, 1950s when it's appropriate in these podcasts. And I thought this was a really good one to touch base on. So I'm not that familiar with this particular car. Uh, It is out of a private collection of motion picture and TV actor Wallace Merck, who I'm not familiar with. Uh, But it is a V8, you know, hardtop sedan here. Sedan here. And it's, it's just nice. It's nice and it's clean. It was equipped with power steering and brakes. So I wanted to have it in there. When I looked at the three-year trend, you know, we, we hear a lot about generational shifts. And ironically, or strangely enough, the three-year trend on this car is slightly up, 0.7. So I think there are some, I'm not saying this is particularly one that bucks the trend of 1940s and 50s cars on a general decline as 
the generational shift occurs within the marketplace. But there are some 1950s and 60s cars that are bucking that trend. I know Cadillacs, we've seen a lot of Cadillacs pass through the auction, hitting not only the low estimate, the high estimate, exceeding the high estimate. So I like keeping a, a t- kind of tabs on what's happening in different eras so we can kind of really inform our clientele, hey, here's a realistic estimate for this car and here's why, whether that's high, low, or other. Uh, so I thought this would be a fun one to add. Greg, when I look at this car, I think a couple things. Uh, this is not for the uh, sh- shy retiring type car collector, I can tell you that. Look at that thing, the stance. It almost looks like it has a little bit of a chop on it on the top. And I I just, I, I can't imagine anything so simple and yet so sexy as a moon wheel. I call them moon wheels. Am I calling them the right thing? Uh, the moon style disc wheels. You look at the colors on this car, the line, the lashes over the headlights, and then take a look at the interior. Good grief. I dare you to pull up to a Cars and Coffee with anything else in the lot and not at least for a few moments have your own car show with this thing. It's it's really a looker. And the other thing I think when I see it is this one does appear to be of quite good quality. Right, yeah, and the estimate is thirty to $35,000, and so... You know, when you're looking at, you know, what would be fun at the local cruise in, this is one that definitely checks a lot of those boxes. Now, last or two weeks ago, we had a nice podcast about analog supercars that people really seem to enjoy. I got a lot of pings, a lot of feedback on that. Yes, I should have mentioned the Vector and the Sailing S7, so I apologize for that, (laughs) which is kind of ironic because I actually saw a Vector last week. (laughs) So um, this next one is one close to my heart. Everybody has heard me talk about this one quite a bit, so I'm going to let Ramsey talk about this one. This is a 2004 Ferrari 575 in Marinello F1. So give us your thoughts on this car, Ramsey. Boy, Greg, here is a car, again, that I've had a chance to drive. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a big fan of GT. I'm also a big fan of that sound that cars make, both the 550s and the 575s. The sound is just simply delicious. It's intoxicating. It's all the adjectives I can come up with. Grigio, Titanio, it's a a beautiful silver, which to me, I think these front engine V12s, I mean, look, it's just, you know, I'm sorry, but to me, that's what a Ferrari should be. And for all you mid-engine lovers out there, forgive me. Those are great cars. My nostalgia is with a front-engined, particularly a front-engined V12. And this is one of that those examples that they go down the road so nice. You can drive from Maine to California. Yes, the F1 transmission, I know, I know. But when they're set up right, Greg, they're they're amazing. The 550s, I see your Haggerty three-year trend here down 16%. I bet that's just focusing probably on the F1s more so than the very, very, very few six-speeds which we ever saw. But the 550s as well as this one, incredible cars to drive. This one fewer than 11,000 miles on the odometer. I think it's a very subtle color, but yet I think a really classic color. Take a look at the seats in this one. For all the listeners, it's the incredible Daytona-style seats, but more importantly, it's the black-red contrast inside that silver. This is the right color. This is the right car. Wherever you are, buy the car, and then hopefully you're a long way away. Uh, Go to the car and drive it home. (laughs) That's what I think. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And what's interesting is I should have pulled these numbers. I'm trying to pull them right now. Uh, if you look at the 550, 
versus the 575 as far as a market trend. So the 575M is down, like you said, 16.4% over the last three years. And I think that's just a matter of the market not catching up to what's happening in the slightly earlier 550 analog cars and especially the manual cars. Because when I look at the 2550, same time frame, the latest three years, I mean, it's up like 20-something percent. I you think know, that's so you're a talking... little bit to do with the, all the 550s were six speeds. And yep. I, I, you and I have talked about this in the past, how this six-speed appeal is it's out of control, which is wonderful. Uh, I drive a six-speed. My collector car is a six-speed. Uh, I like it. It's a lot of fun. But, Greg, you know what? That just makes a car like this all that much more accessible and obtainable. And quite frankly, my experience, which has been very brief with, with both the, the manual as well as the F1 transmission in both uh, the 550 I've driven and the 575 with the F1. I'm sorry, Greg, but if they're set up right, the computers do exactly what they need to do. And the cars are rewarding each in their own unique ways. I mean, look at the, the estimate, 125 to 150. Greg. Let's just put it right there in the middle, $130,000, $140,000 all in, and you have a V12 front-engine Ferrari Grand Touring with the beautiful black-red Daytona seats. Even at that value, I'm sorry, but I consider this to be a, a, an incredible value when it comes to Ferraris. Yeah, when I first saw that estimate, I thought it was a little low. <laughs> and then I do recall, uh, I think it was Scottsdale, we had a uh, 550 you know, six-speed cell. I want to ring the bell over 200. Oh, so yeah. You, you, no, it did over kinda... 220, Greg. That car, that was a really, really nice car. I, I think they look good in red, but I prefer them in colors like the silver. I've seen them in blue. They're really nice. Red is great on some of the... I always think the mid-engine Ferraris, I think these big grand touring machines look just as well in something else. Right, right. Okay, we have five more cars to go, three or which three of which are in your your wheelhouse. <laughs> mm. So the next one's a 1993 Porsche 928 GTS. Why don't you take it away? My first Porsche, my favorite Porsche, and probably always will be the one I lust after the most. Here we go again, Grand Touring Ramsey, they're going to call me, but this thing is amazing. Now, I had an 88 S4, Greg, I owned it for five years, and I think I put something akin to 50,000, 60,000 miles on the car. I have heard the rumors from folks like, oh, they're very expensive to maintain. Uh, I will go so far as to say a subtle and kind hogwash to that. If you get one that has been properly looked after and you continue to put regular and routine maintenance in them, they will give back to you more than you'll ever spend on them. Yeah, they're not necessarily 911s. Oh, I know for all those of you that think it's just simply heresy that there's a big old liquid-cooled V8 out front, I would ask you to get in one, do a few thousand miles, and then get out and tell me what you think. I simply love these cars, and I remain convinced, Greg, that any Porsche petrol head that drives one will fall as in love with them as I was. This one, mine was an automatic. I loved the automatic in that car. It was the same big Borg that was in the Mercedes 560 SEC. This is one of the rare five speeds. This was the ultimate horsepower in these cars. You put that five speed in there, wow, 
it really makes for not only a very special car to drive, but in this case with the manual, quite a rare bird. Look at your Haggerty trends up over 22%. I don't have any trouble believing that. And quite frankly, I think as more and more people begin to appreciate how drivable they are, I I bet that's going to do even better. So you're one of the few guys that can answer this question for me. Compare the back seat of a 928 to a 911. Um, okay, so that's sort of like uh, <laughs> saying, well, I can't even. They both have a back seat. We can start there. Uh, I actually put two people in the back of my 928 one time, and I'm fortunate that at the time my girlfriend still became my wife, uh, and we talk about it to this day. It is a small, small thing, but. Come on, Greg. The back seat of a 911. Let's usually lose the ter- use the term seat there. In the 928, if you move the two front seats forward, you could actually spend a little time back there. Uh, I didn't even look. Does this one have the rear AC? Uh, it does. That's okay. why I brought it up. Yep. I just so want to make you sure. Someone... Now you have that uh, a- additional comfort for your back seat folks. I tell you, the one thing it does have, though, Greg, is when you put the rear seats down and you lift up the rear boot. You can swallow a pile of luggage and stuff <laughs> into one of these cars. Again, befitting of its Grand Touring designation. Right, right. Okay. Well, our next car is a 2009 Mercedes-Benz SLR McLaren Roadster. And I picked this one mostly because when you think about supercars, this one's always like on the fringe. You know, uh, I think they're absolutely stunning, beautiful cars. Obviously, it has the connection with both M- Mercedes and McLaren. Uh, what do you know about this particular car? I've never driven the cab. I have had the good fortune of spending some time in the coupe. They are wicked fast. They are, well, I'll, I'll say one thing, Greg. When you're in them, you clearly detect their race car heritage. Uh, it's a lot of car. Of course, like both this as well as the coupe, the performance is outstanding. They are very rare birds. I've seen the values on these, Greg, and I, I don't know. You tell me what the Haggerty uh, past have shown. These have had some real swings over the years. They've been up. They've been back. They've been up. They've been back. It is sort of one of those cars with the unique combination of that Mercedes and McLaren heritage. But, boy, make no bones about it. It is it's a race car for the street. I don't know that it's something you drive every day, but when you are behind the wheel, it's pretty special. Yeah, and that's actually one of the reasons I picked it was because of the trends. The The three-year trend is down 21.2%, but it's been flat the latest year. So I, I feel like they're back on the upswing. Obviously, the downswing has stopped, and they've been you know trending flat lately. lately. But uh, that's what I'm curious to see. So that's why I actually had it in this podcast. All right, so we're cool. going to move. Good-looking car move. in black, isn't it, with that tan oh. black interior? Wow, yeah. it is sexy. It is. It is a great-looking car. All right, two more to go, and we're going back to the muscle car world for two very specific reasons. So our next one is the 1969 Ford Mustang Boss 429. This is in my wheelhouse. Absolutely love it. Related to the Boss 302 and the Boss 351. This one is the big block NASCAR spec engine. Had to be made, had to be built by Carcraft because it actually could not fit in the engine bay of the Mustang when it was produced. Uh, the estimate on this one is 60 to 80 grand, and that is extremely low. But when you look at the pictures, you understand why. It is a true barn fine. It doesn't have the engine, but it is a true barn fine covered in dust. And I wanted to talk about this car because you and I, Ramsey, know where there's a Boss 429 engine 
sitting on a pallet at uh, one of the local places here in Cincinnati. So I want to see if I can get him to m- marry that <laughs> that engine with that Boss 429 body and see if we can get this thing back on the road. So what are your thoughts about the big boss? You know, this car is, it's, there's no question, Greg, and I'm not sure I fully understand it just yet. And that might have something to do with the fact that I drive my cars a lot the whole romancing the barn find it is it is real i've had so many inquiries on the signs of course you know knowing my clients greg a lot of them have been on that triumph tr6 but this whole barn find collection i was razzing my colleague a little bit when this got loaded up but wow people just simply are drawn to this and here is such a special car Truly in the way that literally the way that Zach rolled it out of the barn. Look at it with the dust on it. Somebody's going to have a project on their hands. But you know what, Greg? Some people find that the most appealing part of collecting great automobiles. And if that's their thing, this is their car. Yeah, and I I love finding barn finds. And you know, and those that follow me on Instagram saw that I did stumble across a little Speedster, 55 Pre-A Porsche Speedster that went elsewhere it did not land with R.M. Sotheby's, but it was such a cool thing to see. And I looked at that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't know where to start. While other people see that is exactly what I want. I know exactly what I'm going to do, and I know exactly what I need to do. So I am not one of those people. God bless those that are. Uh, so I love seeing them as well. I love seeing the fact that this thing's just been rolled out after 30 years or whatever it is. Keep the dust on it. Let's show it as it is, and people can kind of dream from there, which is a lot of fun. All right. Greg, now, I'll hey, ask you, I'm, on, I'm, I'm curious, if you had, let's say, 125000 would you buy one of these literally off the, so to speak, showroom restoration shop floor? Or would you rather spend sixty and spend that all over again and finally drive it in three or four years? I, I you know, there's, there's people that live for that. Uh, and, and obvious by the level of interest we've had in these barn find cars. Well, if you gave me two hundred and seventy-five thousand, where I could actually drive a nice, you know, to condition two, you know, local cruising car, I would do that. I would not want to take on this her- Herculean effort with uh, doing a total rebuild. Yeah. So These are I, I'm there with cars. you. I want to drive a beautiful them. one that I can a client consigned at Amelia last year, and it it over the moon. But it was one of those cars that were better than the day Ford built it. So they got a lot of work cut out for them if they buy this. But it's pretty special. Yeah, now I should have planned this better, by, but I apologize for, st- for ending this podcast on another, another muscle car. Uh, this one's a 1970 Dodge Challenger RT convertible. I picked this one because I personally had one go through our previous sale that was sublime green with white interior. Now, this one is a little bit different. It's plum crazy with white interior. Same kind of engine, uh, 383 big block with a three-speed transmission. And I'm just curious to see, you know, one went through last month. This one's going through this month. We got color change is basically the only difference between the two. That's why I picked it. I was kind of curious. Mopars have been extremely soft for the last two and a half, three years. Uh, The Haggerty trend on this particular car is down 5.3%. But if you look at the AAR Cudas, they're down like 30% over the last three years. So, what are your thoughts on Mopars in general and, and maybe a couple comments on this car? Golly, Greg, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm neophyte enough to say that when I look at these, it's really all about the colors for me. The plum crazy over white. What an absolutely incredible combination. They just, 
you know, we talk about contrast in the Concord world where the more con- contrast you can have, excuse me, the more appealing and, and uh, pleasant it is to the eye. Wow, you certainly have that here. You know, Greg, you know these so well. I just know that the times I've been behind the wheel of, of, of the uh, steering wheel of cars like these, they are monsters to drive. It's what do you think, Greg? I mean, did, I like that green one that you had in last month. I thought that was really special. Of course, green's my favorite color. Yes, I would prefer the green over the plum crazy, but plum crazy is such a classic color. You know, with these uh, with these Mopars, you know, you can't go wrong with. And I actually have a client that has a new, I believe it's a Demon in Plum Crazy, and then he has the 1970 Challenger in Plum Crazy. And ironically, they're not parked next to each other. I'm like, you got to put those next to each other because it looks so cool. Uh, so, yeah, really great car. I love the fact it's a convertible. I'm a convertible guy. I don't currently have a convertible, but I just love those uh, ragtops. So, well, that's great. Any other cars you wanted to talk about uh, Greg, while we're discussing? Greg Stanley, you in, you invite me onto your podcast. We talk about all these amazing cars, and you neglect to mention a 1973 Volvo 1800 <laughs> wagon that is in this sale. Holy Moses, Greg. Uh, look at that baby. She just looks amazing in gold metallic. I don't know anything about this particular one. I haven't talked to my colleague yet. I do know that it looks in absolutely fabulous condition. Uh, I mean, look at that. Pininfarina designed uh, body that the car is... Uh, it's really something special. I, I just love them, Greg. I sold my little red Volvo. It left me yesterday. So as oh. you can imagine, my Swedish lust uh, is uh, in full bore once again. I got to get one of these. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I didn't pick that on purpose because I thought you might have been overdosed on Volvo after the last you know two, three years. Uh, so I know you're going to have to get that Volvo fix now, fix now that that's out of the garage, right? Look at that, Greg. The estimate's thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars for uh, a really. Uh, it's coming out of a restoration that was done in 2015. That's one of the fuel-injected B20. So now we're up to a, we're up to 130 horsepower. But if you if if you have any interest in these cars, I, I want to tell you, having lived uh, with these. The B20, incredible engine. I hate to use the term bulletproof because someone will blow it up, but, man, you're going to have to try hard to do it. But so important, this car has the four-speed with overdrive. Overdrive, Greg. I took my little B20-powered 122 and regularly did 100, 105, 110 miles per hour in very safe conditions, I might add. However, the overdrive transmissions turns these Volvos into really something incredible to drive. I hope if there's any Volvo fans out there or people that think of becoming a Volvo fan, uh, they look at this car. I did not. This is not a car I consigned. I just happen to be a big fan of these things. Well, speaking about cars you did consign, I mentioned Porsche earlier and we had the 928, but I neglected to add a very special 996 Porsche. Could you tell us about that one? I have a special love because my 996 is the first Porsche I've ever owned and I absolutely love it. But could you tell us a little bit about that thank, one? Thank you, Greg. Fans, listeners, this was not set up. He was very kind to give me this opportunity because I was on the phone with someone yesterday and they called about the car and we were having the discussion, not necessarily about this particular car, but quite frankly, Greg, just these 996s altogether. There's two of them in the sale, one with a little bit lower miles, but Tiptronic, this blue one, beautiful lapis blue. The special thing about this car is the interior when it was purchased. Uh, when it was specked out by the consigner, it 
it was one of those leather packages where they put leather on literally bloody well just about everything on the inside of this car. The speaker surrounds everywhere. It's a luxurious interior in a sports car. Greg, I drove this car. I did about 30, 40 miles in it, and it is wickedly fast. These cars just pow whenever you put the accelerator down. They really get up and go. The interior is in incredible condition. The car overall, Greg, look at this. I have this estimated at fifty to $60,000. I think I'm spot on in current market value trends with this car. But I defy you to tell me where you're going to get 415 horsepower on a twin turbocharged six-speed Porsche. A Porsche, Greg, with zero to 60 in what is this, like four or five seconds? Incredible performance. And you're going to take it home with an estimate somewhere between fifty to $60,000. Okay, we can talk about the headlights if you want. You can't see the headlights when you're driving the car. Uh, this is a proper Metzger engine. It's liquid-cooled. It is, it's an incredible value, more than anything right now, certainly in the Porsche world. And I'm going to make the bold prediction that you're going to exceed high estimates because you can get fifty to sixty grand on these cars all day. And it is one that's trending. I didn't have time to pull up the Haggerty valuation trends on it because, like you said, it just kind of added its for the moment here. Uh, but I would, I would bet, you know, the the turbo specifically is up at least double digits. You know, I would guess eighteen to twenty five percent the last three years. Because when you think about nine nine six generation, everybody's talking about GT two, GT three turbos. You know, and so um, I think that they're on a tear, and I think they'll continue to do so. And so I'm going to make that ultimate bold prediction you're going to exceed high estimate we'll have to see how that goes thanks greg i hope that's the case it's a great client who is a true car enthusiast he is predominantly a porsche fan but i do think this whole generation of 911 especially the higher performance models like you said they are i'll use that term inevitable to some degree that these will continue to see more and more appreciation in the market incredible performance well, thank you for your time today, Ramsey. What's the best way our listeners can check out these cars on their own and, and try to put one in their garage? Everybody, let's go to rmsotabees.com. You can see all of our online auctions. This is the March, the March auction. Hop online. I like to look at it and sort of divide it up. You can go into some of the drop-down boxes. I look at the European cars, and then I switch over and look at everything that's selling in North America. Uh, that way I know there may be some way I can satisfy my lusts a little bit easier for the North American lots, but some incredible cars. There's there's a Peugeot, there's a Renault Megane that we have, Megane, I'm not even sure how to pronounce that one, coming out of Europe. Uh, some really neat little hot hatchbacks uh, that uh, our client has in uh, Europe. So there's this this March lineup is... I tell you what, folks, if you're heading into spring and summer and you want something fun, please cite and take a look at what's happening. Yeah, and, and you can also even look at what's already happening for our, our April online sale, open road sale. I mean, there's already a couple stellar Cadillacs on there. Just a quick call out to a 1960 Model 62. That looks beautiful. And then I just saw a Brome showed up. So you never know what you're going to see there. And, you know, those are ones I mentioned have been bucking the trends when it comes to uh, how they're performing in the marketplace compared to other cars of the same era. So be sure to check those out. And uh, I, again, I appreciate your time today, Ramsey. 
Thanks to all our listeners. Uh, I will talk to you all next week. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Greg. Everybody, happy motoring. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.